It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Monday morning, the 6th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Minister for Health is to consult with opposition parties about how to introduce exclusion zones at health facilities which would outlaw protests against abortion. Simon Harris was speaking last week after around 100 people protested outside of the National Maternity Hospital. Like other recent protests, the way the protesters used small white coffins, crosses and graphically worded banners caused offence to many upsetting women who had just had a miscarriage and had an appointment at Hollis Street when the protest was underway. Minister Harris says it is not straightforward to bring in laws that will stop protests at centres where abortion is provided. That's why he hopes for the opposition to work with him on the issue. The AIM2 party, however, believes that abortion should not be accessible through the health service, but will it support people's right to legally access health services without intimidation. Let's talk about this with uh, the leader of AIN2, Patrick Tobin, and Mead West TD. And a very good morning to you. And thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, do you support the idea of exclusion zones? Well, first of all, I want to say that I don't personally agree with the type of protests that are being held uh, at the hospitals uh, at the moment. It's not something that I would personally do myself. Uh, but I do 100% agree with everybody's rights to protest. I think that's the right to peacefully protest is one of the foundations of a healthy democracy. It's similar to the right of free speech. So even if you don't agree with a person of what they're saying, you still support their 100% rights to say it. And I think it's, it's dangerous and undemocratic if we start to ban people's rights to uh, protest and ban people's rights to free speech. Uh, it means we're going down a, 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 a very scary route of where people are not entitled to say some things or not entitled to protest. I remember there was a particular protest where Paul Murphy from Solidarity uh, was at uh, in, in the Right to Water campaign, in which actually a large group of people in a very aggressive manner uh, surrounded Joan Burton's car. Uh, they went to court uh, and the judge stood up for their right to protest in this country. And I think that peaceful protest <clears throat> is a foundation of democracy. And if we start messing with that, uh, we're, we're actually going down a dangerous route. But uh, are we talking about protest? Uh, I, I mean, when you hold a demonstration like this at a health facility where people are accessing services uh, that are available through 
the Irish Health Service legally is that protest. Is it legitimate protest? Is it protesting against policy, against state policy? Well, or or is it coming to judgment on the people who are accessing those services? Well, obviously, abortion is a very controversial issue. And there isn't a country in the so, world... So it is judging the people who are availing of well, abortion services? There isn't a country in the world, Michael, for abortion. So that's not legal. protest? That it, for abortion is legal, that there isn't protest. And, and I actually said this in the doll. Two wrongs don't make a right. To, in, I said this in the doll to the minister when the minister was deciding to go through the health service, through maternity services. So you want um, you want people to I, judge You've asked people. me three questions there, Michael. Well, no, I, I asked you one, one, which you haven't no, answered yet. No, you didn't. Like, you've asked me three questions and I haven't got a full sentence out. Well, the, uh, the, my, well, my, well I'll ask the one question again. Uh, is okay. it protest? Uh, is, is it protesting policy or is it judging the action of individuals? It's it's peacefully protesting, and that's what, what actually happened. And whether you agree with the tactics that we used, and I said I, I, I wouldn't go on one of those protests, personally, myself, because I don't agree with them. But I will stand up for the right to other people uh, to protest, even if I don't agree with what they're saying. And that's the function of democracy. Free speech isn't for people that you agree with. Free speech is for people you don't agree with. What? And what if, are people if, if, you decide, if you decide, Michael, that the right to protest is only for something that you agree with, or the right to free speech is only for something to you, that you agree with, you're making a mockery, a, a, a mockery of what a functional democracy is about. No, I'm out, I'm out, democracy I'm out, I'm out, is about actually challenging each other's views uh, and, and doing that in a peaceful fashion. Okay, I, I'm asking if this is a, a protest in actual fact. Uh, I'm not arguing that people should not be allowed to protest. I'm asking if this is a, a protest or is this a gathering of people who have made a judgment against other people, people who are not doing anything wrong legally in a democratic state? Well, I would say, that, again, you're going down a dangerous uh, route if you start to define what other people's uh, protests are. When the, this came through the doll just well, over expl- a year ago, the minister himself, uh, I raised this with the minister. I said to the Minister for Health, Simon Harris, if you use the maternity health services to provide for abortion, now that's not done in any other country, Michael. Every other country does it through uh, other systems of uh, separate abortion clinics. I said, if you're going to have abortions happening in a ward next to somebody else who's had a miscarriage, you're going to create a very difficult situation for mothers uh, who have had miscarriages, who feel that you know, their doctor has been fighting for the survival of the child, mm. while in a, in a ward next to them, a doctor has ended the life of a child. And if you put that into a maternity hospital, you're also going to mean that you will have protests outside of those maternity hospitals. But Simon Harris, in a bullheaded fashion, proceeded with this particular model, and he was wrong to do it. Uh, it they shouldn't be happening in maternity services. Our maternity services are under massive pressure at the moment. And, you know, there has been many articles and, 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 and news reports on your own radio station that has indicated that maternity services are not able to deal with the maternity uh, crisis that they're, they're, they're in, never mind adding an extra layer of abortion services on top of that also. Okay, so but that's not what's at issue here. What is at issue here is this protest, as you describe it. You say people are peacefully protesting. What are they protesting over? Well, obviously these individuals... Um, oppose the uh, the issue that abortion is available for absolutely any reason whatsoever and that abortion is available in hospitals in late-term situations as well in this country uh, and they oppose that in the same way that they do in the United States of America and in Britain countries where abortion is available since the 60s uh, every country that 
you know, introduces a okay. controversial service such as this, okay, so elicits a response by people. So they're protesting against the policy, which the vast majority of people in this country voted in favour of. Yeah, for sure. Okay. And, you know, so, um, and that is their democratic right to oppose what has been democratically decided by the people and is now law. It is legal. So why are they protesting against a service where that service is being provided? You can only assume it's to intimidate the people who are availing of that service, is it not? It's, well, not, it's not a protest against policy. It's a, a protest against how people are acting individually. Well, first of all, a protest is likely to happen at the location of the service that is provided. And uh, that's obviously what's happening here uh, outside of the National Maternity Service. Uh, and in some of these cases, uh, there are individuals uh, in, in an international... I'm surprised uh, you say that. I'm sorry, I'm, because, I mean, I, I think uh, the place where this has been decided on is in Leinster House. Uh, and maybe that would be an appropriate place or, or well, there ha- there the Department been, of Health. Um, I have been involved in protests where 20, 30, 40,000 people have marched outside of Mm. uh, Leinster House uh, with regards trying to stand up for the simple idea that everybody should have the right to life and And no one individual should have their life ended by a doctor unilaterally in in this country. And that's a protest against the policy. And that's that's why I held those particular protests. But it's not making making a judgment on the people who are legally availing of a health service. Well, first of all, it's not health service. Health services. It's a provide, service that's provided through the health service. It's a health. Just it's important that we we don't confuse language here. Health protects life and saves life, and this particular service ends the life of a, of a healthy individual human being. So this is not a health service in, in, in any ways. And when we when we do injustices to the meaning of words, it, it adds to the confusion it's, of the situation. It's one of the services so what provided we have through here the Irish is, health system. We, we have a functioning liberal democracy in this country, where. People are entitled to respectfully and peacefully protest in this country. And in, this is a, a public space. And, and it's interesting because we had a Dr. Higgins who has condemned this particular protest outside the hospital, who herself was involved in a protest outside of the same hospital in advance of the abortion law coming uh, in, into place. And I, I actually I think there's actually a hypocrisy at the back of all of this, because every time that we see the health service creak in the manner that it's creaking now, remember in in Cork University Hospital at the moment, we have have operations that are being cancelled today due to the overcrowding that exists in that hospital. Every time we see the, the creaking of the hospital services, we see Minister Harris, you know, deflect on issues such as this. I actually think he should be the Minister for Deflection at the moment because he's not doing his job with regards to health service whatsoever. And when he's under pressure with regards to health service, he deflects to these very, very controversial It's, a, it's an odd way to, to put actually, it. It's an odd way to put it, or it would seem an odd way to put it to me, because it would seem to me that you're intentionally deflecting from the reality of the situation that people are going through. And as opposed to abortion, as you are, Padre Tobin, I am sure, I'm certain you'll agree that anybody who is in that position is in a position of crisis. Uh, they are quite often, and not anybody, but a lot of the people we're talking about are in crisis. Uh, And to come out to look at at, at little coffins or white crosses or to be condemned for doing something that they are entitled to do legally uh, is not forgivable. Uh, In the same way uh, that it is not forgivable to think that somebody who has lost a, a child through a miscarriage has to come out and face the same wrath. Well, first, first of all, and I repeat, I don't agree with the particular protests 
that are happening outside of the hospitals. It's not something that I would do, and it's not something that I agree with whatsoever. However, I would. I am I'm a very strong Democrat, and I believe that there there is a need in society all the time for people to have the right of free speech and the right to protest. Also, you make the point of a individual coming out from a hospital who has had a miscarriage or who has lost a, a, a very young infant. And I will tell you, the fact that there are abortions in those maternity services is in itself a uh, something that's very hard to deal with if you've just had a miscarriage. If you're in, if, if you're in one particular ward and you know that in the ward next door there's a situation where a a, a, a child, exactly the same healthy child, has lost its, its life purposely because of the law and because of the doctors. So even if I don't agree with what, what you're saying, Michael, I believe that you have the right to mm. say it. But do you not agree and with it, what I'm that saying? That is one of the very foundations do, of a liberal democracy. Do, do you not, do, you, do, do, do you uh, not agree? You, or, I mean, do you think uh, women terminate pregnancies uh, lightly? First of all, I have, in, in all of the debates that I've had on this, I have very clearly stated I make no judgment in any way against anybody who has gone through an abortion. I make no ju- I, I am I will never be in the dark situations that many many people find themselves. But do you do, do you agree that the majority of women who make that decision their, their, don't their make child. it lightly and they make it uh, in a, a crisis situation? Well, well, what I'm saying to you is I've never made any judgments uh, with regards to situations and and I've I've stated that over and over and over again. These situations are very, very, very difficult situations uh, for mothers around the country. I believe that our response to them should be supporting those mothers. Like, we have Simon Harris, who makes, who has said that he believes in the right to choose. Mm. Yet the economic policies that Simon Harris is creating makes so many women feel that they don't have the right to choose. Well, it's Last not... year, Michael, 19 women gave birth homeless well, in this there's, country. There's no support, now, where there's is no the support choice by holding those a white women... coffin or, or telling people they'll go to hell. But first of all, as I said, that is, they are not my views yeah. in any way. I actually said again that I disagree radically with mm. those views. But what I'm saying to you is, Many of the women, and, and the, the Committee on the Eighth Amendment stated this, 85% of all the abortions that happen in this country happen for socioeconomic reasons. Okay. They're happening because this government are refusing to give the economic support to the mothers okay. uh, with regards to being able to raise their child. And what we're saying in AIM2 is, I just want to make this point, we're saying in AIM2 is, we need to make sure that every single mother has the economic confidence to be able to raise their child to their full potential in this country. Can I just ask and you, And the though, fact that that's not happening is driving well, so can many Can I just ask you about the despair. protests? When you say you disagree with the form of protest, do you think that the way people have been protesting is unacceptable? Well, when you say unacceptable, you, you believe then that you should not accept this protest. Um, and that's not a form of words that I would use. What I'm saying to you is I don't agree with that particular form of protest. So, 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 not, the, so the minister not, won't get your support. It's not something I'm comfortable with, and it's not something that I would do. But my point at the very heart of this is, you could say something to me that I am not comfortable with whatsoever, but I would never come to a situation to say that you should be banned from saying it. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Peter Tobin is a TD in Meath West and to the founder and leader of the AIM2 party. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Irish Times reports uh, today that ambulance personnel in County Clare had to undertake a round trip of more than 900 kilometres to Tipperary and Cork during one 12-hour shift 
over the weekend. Uh, let's talk about this uh, with Paul Bell, divisional organiser with Sipsu's Health Division. And uh, I think there's a slight correction to Martin Wall's report in the Irish Times this morning because it's not 900, 900 kilometres, it's 901 901 precisely. <laughs> right, tell us. So I'll have to take this up with Martin Wall as soon as possible. Explain this madness to us. Well, it, it is a madness. So just to explain uh, how the National Ambulance Service uh, completes its functions, is that where uh, an, an ambulance is required uh, in the immediate area, the control room will assess what resources are available. If there are no resources available, then they go to the next nearest ambulance. And this call was coming in from Clonmel in County Tipperary. And what happened was the next available ambulance was actually in West County Clare. That, those colleagues responded to that call, uh, got there as quickly as possible. Uh, and when they arrived there, they dealt with the call, they went to the hospital where they needed to go and then another call came where they then had to go to another call for the mm. south which they ended up in Yall County Cork My God. Uh, that call was completed uh, and then they returned back mm. to base so there are two things going on here yeah. one is that while well, the ambulance resource removed itself from West County Clare mm. then it wasn't there for anybody else and then it obviously gets caught in other areas which is completely outside its normal catchment mm. area. Why is this happening? It's very simple. Uh, well, everybody's talking about the emergency department and generating yeah. more beds and the flu epidemic and, and Cork mm. uh, and other areas, by the way. Uh, there seems to be no understanding is that uh, there's a whole other resource being caught in that, which is the availability of emergency ambulances mm. to respond to the public right. uh, at, the, at one stage outside Cork University Hospital and, and the Mercy Hospital you probably had approximately 8 to 10 ambulances at any one time mm-hmm. the, the crisis there of course it's taken 3.5 hours to 7 hours to clear which means to basically be able to hand the patient over safely to the hospital mm. and then come back on to call. And this is a, an issue that we were discussing on the yeah. programme last week uh, yes. and some of uh, the problems yeah. that your members mm-hmm. face. But yeah. uh, quite often uh, you hear uh, about ambulances travelling long distances. Um, yes. Whenever the HSE is asked about this, they say it's not a static service. Mm. Uh, and it certainly isn't a static service mm. in the case of uh, this particular story. I'm not sure uh, what you would call it, but to go from Tipperary to Cork uh, mm. and uh, back a- a- again is uh, quite incredible. Really, well, isn't it, 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 it is interesting to it's not a static service, mm. Mm. but it is becoming a static service mm. because the reason that those calls are being responded to in that manner mm. is that ambulance resources are being basically anchored to the emergency department. Mm. The ambulance crew must take care of the patient until the patient is safely transferred to the emergency Mm. department. This is now happening with the ambulance vehicle. It's becoming an extension of the emergency department. That is Mm. not the protocol. That should not be the protocol. So if we just use this as an example. 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 It's quite possible that there were ambulances in Cork, but they were parked at the emergency department and uh, couldn't have the patient admitted or taken over uh, the care of the patient taken over by the staff uh, and the same at Tipperary so because all of the ambulances yeah. were tied up yeah. parked up mm-hmm. in the emergency department an ambulance had to come from Clare well, and don't forget something the ambulance vehicles and crews in Kilkenny were also at that stage deployed right. or engaged mm. so they couldn't respond mm. now people would say oh this could be an isolated incident the problem is it's not uh, over the weekend I've been receiving calls from ambulance professionals based in the Midlands based in the west of Ireland uh, uh, who are basically trans, uh, transporting patients or responding to calls uh, fairly in a wide catchment area. Mm. The big problem we've had with this is before Christmas, uh, 
we called on the Minister for Health and the, the National Ambulance Service Management and the Department of Health to agree some type of protocol whereby patients in this situation could be cared for uh, while they were waiting to be admitted to the hospital service. That was absolutely ignored. Mm. And we said this because members of the public don't understand that they have uh, you know, an under, uh, a clear expectation when they call for an ambulance, it will respond as quickly as possible. What they don't understand is that this in emergency that's going on at the moment in Cork and other areas, mm. by the way, it's actually stopping that service from being provided to them. Mm. There's one other point too, Michael, which the, the members of the public and the listeners may be shocked to hear. Uh, the organisation, like Responsibility for Regulation and Quality, uh, HICWA, uh, they have no right to inspect an emergency department on the grounds of safety. However, they have a right to inspect and make commentary, uh, recommendations and, and criticism of the ambulance service. Yeah. And one of the areas where they are quite critical of the ambulance service and have been for some period is what's the uh, level of response time. Yeah. Without actually saying, actually, the response time is being impacted on by a number of factors, including another area of the health service. Yeah. Mm. This is a very... Impeded. Very, absolutely. Mm. Uh, in, 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 I mean, this is the example. Uh, how, how long, for example... Uh, could an ambulance be tied up at an emergency department? Well, uh, over the weekend, we were receiving calls from uh, ambulance professionals advising. In some cases, they are being uh, grounded for three and a half hours. Uh, in some cases, they were grounded for six hours. Mm. Seven and a half hours is the longest. Right. So that vehicle was not available. So in other words, difficult to reach yeah. the HICWA standard of, what is oh, it, 17 and a half well, minutes? Well, it's, that's the response time, Michael. Yeah. That's the response time. Remember, these that's from the time you phone yeah, for an ambulance to, to, to respond. Now, don't forget mm. this. This issue here is now. It's what, mm. What's happening is these vehicles and these professionals mm. are not available. Yeah, they are not. When, when you, if you were sitting in the ambulance control in Tala or in Ballyshannon in County mm. Donegal, what you're seeing is a number of stationary ambulances. Mm outside health facilities. So even if you were, let's say, at the beginning of the day to reach the target time, and I call an ambulance and it arrives yeah. within 17 and a half minutes and yeah. then takes me to the hospital, yeah. if that ambulance is outside of the hospital mm-hmm. for seven hours, yeah. uh, it's not going to arrive to the next call in 17 and a half minutes. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And don't forget something. We have that very, you know, sad case where, where the coroner uh, uh, made recommendations and, and it said he would engage in relation to the incident at Letterkenny University Hospital where an ambulance could not respond to a, a lady who was in dire need of an ambulance service because that ambulance was caught at the emergency department mm. and an ambulance had to be sent for from uh, Dunglow to Letterkenny. Considerable distance, tricky enough roads. Mm. That's the type of thing that we are concerned about. But we are also concerned that there's too much of focus on what's going on in the hospital without an understanding of what's actually happening outside the hospital in the provision of emergency frontline service. All right, we'll leave it there and thank you thank for you. coming in to us uh, this morning. Uh, that's uh, SIP2 Health Division organiser Paul Bell. Now, the world, it seems, is on the brink with tensions between America, Iran and Iraq, for that matter, with thousands of people in Iran mourning the death of General Qassam Soleimani. Uh, a number of things have happened uh, in uh, the last number of days, including response from Iraq to the killing of the Iranian general. Its parliament has voted to oust thousands of Americans 
American service members who are stationed in Iraq. President Trump has threatened Baghdad with sanctions if American forces are forced to leave the country. The American military announced that it would halt its fight against ISIS in Iraq. Iranian state television is reporting that Iran will no longer abide by the limits of the 2015 nuclear deal, which has significant potential consequences for all of us. And as I say, this is at a a time of high tension in Iran and indeed great mourning for the loss of General Qassam Soleimani. I think uh, when you see people on television and how they've been responding, it's quite clear that they are very, very upset. Uh, But the response of Donald Trump, who ordered his killing has been remarkable, far from diplomatic, far from suggesting that a human life needed to be extinguished. He's been talking like somebody out of a cartoon saying, we got him. I'd like to begin my remarks today by extending our profound thanks and gratitude to the extraordinary men and women of the United States military. Right? They're by far the best and greatest anywhere in the world. There's nobody close. In recent weeks, American warriors executed a daring raid that killed the savage leader of ISIS, al-Baghdadi. He was a depraved butcher who will never again hurt another innocent person. Last night, at my direction, the United States military executed a flawless strike that terminated the terrorist ringleader responsible for gravely wounding and murdering thousands and thousands of people and hundreds and hundreds, at least, of Americans. Qasem Soleimani has been killed and his bloody rampage is now forever gone. He was plotting attacks against Americans, but now we've ensured that his atrocities have been stopped for good. They are stopped for good. Uh, I don't know if you know what was happening, but he was planning a very major attack, and we got him. We are a peace-loving nation. And my administration remains firmly committed to establishing peace and harmony among the nations in the world. We do not seek war. We do not seek nation building. We do not seek regime change. But as president, I will never hesitate to defend the safety of the American people, you. So let this be a warning to terrorists. If you value your own life, you will not threaten the lives of our citizens. Americans have many blessings, but perhaps the greatest among them is the blessing of being protected by the most exceptional and virtuous military on the face of God's earth. Dear Lord, uh, that's uh, Donald Trump. Mr. Trump, as you know, is uh, the president of uh, that peace-loving nation, the United States of America. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. The Irish Mail 
concludes on its front page story today that government hopes to solve uh, the homeless crisis lies in tatters under the headline of 63% rise in homeless children. It looks at statistics uh, relating uh, to what was promised under the Rebuilding Ireland programme, which was launched three years ago. And the story based on uh, figures uh, that have uh, been put together by Fianna Fáil indicate that there has been a 63% rise in the number of children who are homeless. This uh, on foot of the promise to reduce an unacceptable level of homelessness and over the last three and a half years has resulted in 59% people overall uh, that's 59% more people overall who are homeless now. Rents have increased by 26% despite the promise to make rent more affordable. New homes should have realised 25,000 houses being built every year instead the average has been just just over 16,000. The government promised to to build 4,969 social houses. 4,811 is the actual figure. So again, a shortfall. 1,500 rapid home programmes were promised. Instead of the 1,500, it's 423. And uh, they said uh, that they would process almost 5,000 mortgage-to-rent applications. Instead of that 5,000, just over 600 have been completed since 2012. Let's talk about this with Mike Allen, who's uh, Director of Advocacy and Communications and Research with Focus Ireland. Good morning to you, Mike, and thanks for joining us. I I doubt these figures will come as much of a, a surprise to you, but it is interesting to see them spelt out in black and white on the front page of a newspaper this morning. Yeah, they, they are, the figures, as far as I can see, are, are the government's own figures. So these, while I believe it's a report compiled by uh, Fianna Fáil, is all they've done is gone into the government's own reports and, and drawn out the, these conclusions. And uh, on the uh, Focus Island website, and a lot of people will be aware that we track a lot of these figures in a very accessible way on, on, on graphs and so on. That's the most visited part, one of the most visited parts on our, our, our page. It's a very bleak reading. Um, um, the, the government quite rightly is saying that they, want, that they have been working extremely hard mm. and they're quite rightly saying that they've made a lot of progress from where we were. Mm. But really people don't want to judge. You, know, you don't get judged in your job. I don't get judged in my job just by how hard I'm working. I'm also judged by what I achieve. And the government, uh, if it's judged on what it's actually achieved in this area, it hasn't achieved its own targets. And I think one thing that doesn't come across in, in, in the report is that even if it had achieved those targets, the targets weren't ambitious enough in the first place, and things would still be getting worse, even if it had actually built a number of social houses, built a number of homes, mm. had the number of mortgage to rent uh, um, uh, changes that they'd promised. Even if it had achieved those, things would be getting worse. So their targets weren't ambitious enough and they're not being met. And it's, it's an extremely serious problem for a lot of people, not just for homeless people, but for people facing homelessness and people who are doubling up, people who are living back with their parents or parents having their children back with them, people who are overcrowded, people who are in, in, in living in uh, circumstances which don't really allow them to have the sort of life that they um, they would expect, particularly so many people are working and beginning to earn some decent money, but it's still not turning into a decent place mm. to live. So when the government says we are making progress, you have to give us more time, you don't accept that? Well, um, 
I think you have to accept that they're making progress. Things were very mm. were dire. We were building no houses. I mean, there's some questions, serious questions have to be asked about how we got to the situation where we allowed ourselves to decimate our entire construction industry as if we would never need homes again. But that's the situation that the, 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 um, the, the current government faced. Um, so they have made progress, but it isn't sufficient progress. And what's really worrying here is there is an opportunity at the election time that's coming yeah. up for everybody to reset and to have a new set of, of programs and so on. I hope that we're not just going to see the current government defend its position. It really needs to come out and acknowledge that what has been done has been done, but they need to have a, uh, a new approach, new, new policies, and we need the electorate to be looking at, at real, real ambitious but meaningful um, uh, uh, programs from each of the political parties so that the people can make their judgment as to which of these yeah. parties is, is to be given the time to do it. In other words, this points to the second part of how the government is defending itself. It says we are making progress, but you need to give us more time. Yes, you say you have made progress, but in the time that you have, you haven't made sufficient progress and we would have expected more. We would have expected you to have reached the targets that you set for yourself at least. Absolutely. And, and I mean, one of the, the, the things that's, that's fundamentally wrong with Rebuilding Ireland is the first programme dealing with homelessness that we've had for almost 20 years, which didn't set a target for ending homelessness. It, didn't, you know, it would be unrealistic to have said uh, three years ago we'll end homelessness in three years. That, that We were in too big a hole to do that. But it never sees, it doesn't see a horizon. It doesn't see a point where this turns around. And obviously, if you never set a target mm. for dealing with the problem, you can't be accused of not meeting your targets. There's a whole range of really important targets, uh, which I think people in Ireland expect to be achieved, such as making sure that families don't stay for um, long periods of time in homeless accommodation, that uh, elderly people over 65 don't end up homeless, things like that that aren't in the programme and aren't being achieved. So it, it, the absence of, the, where there are targets, they're not sufficiently ambitious for the scale of the problem. And there's a whole range of areas which are really important and they're very important to, pe to, to Irish people which aren't in the programme at all. And the government can say, well, you know, that wasn't a target, so it doesn't matter that we haven't entered family homelessness or that we haven't reduced the time that the, mm. the, the children spend in homeless accommodation. But when the government says it would be a lot worse if we hadn't taken the action that we have taken, uh, that might be right, but uh, does it act as an excuse for uh, the failings that have led to these figures that we're looking at now? Well, if you think of that at any part in your life, like in anything that you do in your life and you make a, you know, you're doing something, you make a mess of it and you, you say, say to your wife or you say to your boss, oh, well, it would be far worse if I had, you know, done nothing. It's a pretty thin excuse. Uh, uh, like, um, yes, it absolutely would be. If the government had got into power and not bothered to build any houses, mm. things would have been worse. Yeah. But or if we didn't have a government. <laughs> I mean, it's a sort of ludicrous sort of... Yeah. If that's mm. the best defence you can have, you're really in trouble. And I, I, I think that, in fact, that sort of defence doesn't do even the government credit. Because one thing that really does need to be said is... The issue here isn't that people didn't work hard. Mm. Everybody that I know in local authorities, uh, in front lines in local authorities, people in the custom house working in the department, they're working extremely hard on these issues. It's just that the, there's a, the, the, the plan isn't good enough, and that's a, a political uh, decision, and some of the leadership, people in leadership positions are not, not behind this. 
and the extent to which a lot of local authorities, um, because the, the, the heart of this problem has to be solved by local authorities. They're, they're at the front line of this in terms of building social houses and, mm. and getting planning permissions through. There's a lot of local authorities which just aren't pulling their weight. There are some that are, but there are some which just aren't. And, and so, for instance, you, people would have read about in, in, in Dublin this proposal by the, the uh, Chief Executive Officer of Dublin City Council. When we need, we've never needed more, we've never more needed public land to build housing on. And his proposal is we sell off you know, huge amounts of land in, in, in the city, which otherwise could be used for building social housing. It's quite clearly people in quite important positions are not um, behind rebuilding Ireland, and they're not behind seriously tackling the housing and homelessness crisis. And those people need to be challenged, and they need to be, um, we need to have a good debate in the run-up and during the general election about these issues so that we can... Mm-hmm whatever government comes in back into power, whether it's the same one or a new one, that they come in with a programme that we can believe in, that's been properly scrutinised. Are we asking too much? Uh, is it possible that this is an impossible task? Uh, no, it's not an impossible task. Um, the achievements in this country uh, over since independence in terms of housing are enormous, like in a, in a country which was much, much poorer, we have one of, until very recently, one of the great records we have as a country since independence is dealing with uh, the scale of the housing problem that we had when we became independent. So we've, we, we've dealt with this problem before when we were much poorer. And our achievements in getting out of the hole we were in during the recent crash are actually extraordinary. Nobody would have believed that, that we'd have got back to the current employment situation. It's just that this issue hasn't been taken with the same level of seriousness as, as, as it was in the past and as other issues are being taken uh, at the moment. And we can't, it, it's, people possibly get a bit tired of hearing about Finland, but Finland is a country of a similar size to Ireland. It went through a process during the last uh, recession, which is in some ways worse, in some ways not so bad as Ireland's, and they've uh, almost eliminated homelessness over the period of time. If you go back 15 years ago, we had they had much worse homelessness than we did, and they are now down to virtually zero homelessness. There's no reason mm. why we couldn't do the same in Ireland. If that's true, why are we in this situation? Is it because there aren't votes in solving the homeless problem? Uh, because, I mean, you wouldn't envy one of the government ministers being interviewed on this over the last number of years. Uh, they're being hammered on it time and again. Uh, and uh, we're told that this will be a big election issue. We were told that the last time around as well, but uh, I'm not sure that it made much difference. I, it, we would have to wait and see whether there are votes in it. I think there are votes in it. It, it. it requires the different political parties to put forward a programme that can, conv- and if one or more parties can convince people that actually they are capable of making difference, I think that will uh, that will lead lead to shifts in votes. If all the parties just uh, spend all their time attacking each other, um, I think then people will go on to on, on to other issues. So I think there's a lot of space there for parties to come forward with with, with, with uh, um, ambitious but uh, but deliverable programs. I think why it has, has, has the government failed? I mean, at the heart of it is, the, the first thing is, they seriously underestimated the scale of the problem. They didn't fully take into account how, um, uh, how on its knees the uh, building and development industry was. They didn't fully grasp how the, um, the, the crash had sort of taken the, the, the capacities of local authorities out of uh, um, 
capacity of local authorities mm-hmm. to build, they didn't really take those into account, and nor did they see that the 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 the, the, the scale of the number of people who were going to be, be made homeless. We were set, we were telling them these things, and a number of people in the department, in the discussion we've had, have said, yes, look, we did underestimate this at the beginning. If they had seen the scale of the problem, I think that they would have mobilized more resources at, at an early stage to try and achieve it. And they'd have had to have taken into account that if the private sector was incapable of doing it, some form of public uh, commitment to, to house building, as we had in the past, like huge parts of all our cities uh, were built by public action, by the state, not just for social mm-hmm. housing, but also for houses for sale. Um, we did that in the past and was extremely successful. We decided not to do it this time, and we're paying the consequence of that because it's quite clear that the private sector um, is not capable of, of, of doing it because of um, range of factors, including what happened to it during the, the crash, but also access to credit and the, the um, uncertainty about house prices. Okay. So. All right. Thank you very much indeed for joining us here this morning. Mike Allen, Director of Advocacy, Communications and Research with Focus Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. And when you discuss abortion, we always get plenty of reaction and that's been the case this morning. Draw the listener says, Michael, you can't pick or choose when people have a right to protest. We are a democracy. They are entitled to make their feelings known if they are against something. People feel strongly against this issue. Jim from Navin says that he voted in favour on abortion, but he's not too sure about exclusion zones as he thinks people have a right to protest. Elizabeth phoned in, very annoyed, says when anyone has a different opinion to you, Michael, you won't let them speak. As far as she's concerned, abortion is murder. You don't catch pregnancy walking down the street. I've had miscarriages. I know what it's like to lose a child. Doctors are trained to save lives. Okay, and I don't know, maybe she's right, but she lost the argument. Uh, I mean, she lost the argument in a a referendum. The vast majority of people voted in favour of introducing laws that would allow for abortion in this country, and uh, they are now provided by the health service in hospitals and other settings. And if uh, there is a wrong decision that needs uh, to be amended, maybe it's the policymakers who people should be protesting against or to, as uh, the case may be. And I suppose that's the point or the question that I was asking this morning, should these protests take place uh, at hospitals, healthcare facilities where people are availing of health services or should they uh, occur where the decisions are are made? Uh, If people have a problem with the policy, it's Leinster House perhaps uh, where the protests should take place. John also phoned in, doesn't know how abortions ever became legal in this country and believes that the government should not have been allowed to intervene in the debate. Theresa from Navin also phoned in, just wondering are all the men of Ireland so irresponsible that they want free sex whenever they can get it? nothing about these men and what they do they were always there down the centuries homes in Ireland with unwanted babies men have rootless sex anywhere they can get it and women are not caring for themselves and respecting their bodies Abortion. I find it hard to think that somebody would think that. Okay. Abortion is murder, says Breed. Mm. Uh, supposed to be only for abnormality of a baby, not for the inconvenience of parents. 
Declan from Kells. I have great admiration for Father Tobin because he is a man of principle and unlike so many other politicians, he stuck by what he believed in, even though it cost him membership of Sinn Féin. Okay. Mairead from Drogheda believes that the minister should fast track exclusion zones ASAP. Women who decide to have an abortion do so for a variety of reasons. Nobody knows the reason a woman is there. Mm. They are in a vulnerable position and they don't need to have so-called do-gooders shouting in their faces or pushing unwanted material in their faces. It's intimidation, Michael. Mm. That's Mm. what it Mm. is. Mm. They should not be allowed in close proximity of patients. Well, whether people think it's right or wrong is their own business, uh, but it's uh, people's business if uh, they decide to avail of uh, these services through the Irish health system because they are legally uh, available to people and they are doing nothing wrong legally. Angela says, Michael, have the good manners to listen to your guest, Padre Tobin, and not be interrupting him. An email from Kathleen who says, there is judgment blaring out on this topic of women having abortion in Ireland, what's the difference between women's rights to a safe provider in the health service for a woman giving birth, experiencing a miscarriage, experiencing a termination of pregnancy? Someone is pointing the finger at one of these women. They should follow God's example when the woman in the Bible was about to be stoned to death for adultery. We all know what Jesus said to the people who condemned her. That God help mother each mother in their own personal situation let him separate them into who is more worthy of health care in this group of women and their individual rights. All right. Well, it seems as though the minister is intent on introducing exclusion zones. So I think uh, we'll either have protests or we'll have talk uh, uh, about exclusion zones from people who wish to protest the introduction of such zones. Uh, but I'm sure that we'll have more talk uh, about the services and the way people feel on both sides of the debate in uh, the coming days and weeks. But let's talk uh, about something completely different. As you've been hearing this morning, the latest Litter League results have uh, been published by Eyeball, uh, and it's not particularly good news locally with uh, Drogheda and Navan falling down in uh, the rankings table. I've been talking with Conor Horgan, who's spokesperson for Eyeball. Uh, that's the Irish Businesses Against Litter. Unfortunately, this year it's a bit of a mixed bag when it comes to our litter survey. The good news is that our city centres are clean. In fact, for the first time in 17 years of these surveys, all the city centres we surveyed were clean. That's great news. That's been coming. Um, But the year-on-year improvement we're used to in our towns has reversed somewhat, and we have fewer clean towns. Uh, And that's really because too many towns had heavily littered sites, among them, in fact, Drogheda, and that explains Mm. Drogheda's decline in this year's ranking. Okay, and uh, both Drogheda and Navan have fallen in terms of their rankings. Maybe you tell us about the problems in Drogheda, because there were two sites in particular that you were concerned about. Yes, I mean, in Drogheda, bear in mind that Drogheda was a top 10 contender this time last year. So um, to have lost clean status, and it's now moderately littered, um, is uh, is unusual, actually, and obviously disappointing. It was down to a number of bad sites, and um, particularly bad was a derelict site at Westgate House, which was a litter black spot. There was also the recycle centre at Palace Street, which was heavily littered. In fairness, 
it was described as a very poor site, but we do get that a lot with recycled centres, which are hard to maintain. And aside from that, the approach road, the Dulik approach road was moderately littered. St. Lawrence Street was moderately littered. So, you know, those sort of disappointing sites, they're enough to bring you down our rankings significantly. Whose fault is it, by the way, uh, when the recycling centres are, are littered like that? Uh, because we quite often get calls from people who say, I'm trying to do the right thing, I'm trying to recycle, and I go there, and there's no bin to put the bag I carried the bottles down into. Uh, and there should be, so I left it by the side of it, and you know, people then give out if they get fined for doing that. Well, people obviously shouldn't do that. But first and foremost, these recycle centres have to be managed properly by the local authority. And if they're in great demand, and that's a signal of their need and their popularity, well, then the management of them has to take place accordingly. And, you know, we do have cases where they're managed extremely well. And year and year we see recycle centres that are in great condition. But all too often, I don't think the necessary resources from the local authority are put into them. Nonetheless, that's not an excuse for just dumping the material if there's no place for them. But uh, first and foremost, I think responsibility lies with the local authority. Okay, but two wrongs don't make a a right. I I take it is uh, the argument there. You say the uh, worst uh, site in Drogheda was uh, that derelict boarded up site at Westgate House. Uh, And you say that the problems at both of these sites didn't happen overnight. No, it didn't. And I mean, that Westgate house, that's been used as a dumping ground. It was described as being in a shocking state by the examiner. Um, And it's clear from the nature of the the rubbish that they've been there for some time. Um, You know, it is worrying that, and that is typical of the sort of bad sites we're seeing across the country. We're thinking maybe that they're not accessible to the tidy towns groups and the other volunteer groups that do such sterling work. But our point is, once we've identified them, there's no excuse for the local authority not to clean them up now, because we'll be coming back in summer and Mm. we'll be revisiting the bad sites to check that they've been fixed. Okay, and despite uh, the two very bad sites in uh, Drogheda, the town is considered to be moderately littered because there's a a lot of good things to say about the town. A lot of good things. The train station, both inside and out, presented well. That's obviously important for people entering the town. It was very good with regards to litter. The memorial in St. St. John Philip Holland and the immediate environment was an excellent environment in terms of the presentation and the maintenance and so forth. Uh, West Street was a grade A. So uh, the connecting road to Navan was grade A. Yeah. So, no, as with most towns, lots of good to report, just let down a bit by, by one or two bad sites. And uh, a lot of good things to be said uh, about Navan, uh, which is ranked far higher than Drogheda. Drogheda, uh, 31, moderately litter. Uh, Navan is clean to European norms at 17. Yes, and the, the, I suppose the interesting thing about the Navan report is that it doesn't have any heavily littered sites, and that's most unusual. So Navin's problem is that there's too many sites that just have small amounts of litter, grade Bs as we call them. Mm. They include Abbey Road, the Navin Shopping Centre, Trimgate Street. Again, the recycle facility um, is mentioned as a grade B, which isn't bad, but um, not far off being an excellent report for Navin. And again, lots of good things to commend there. Pool Boy Bridge and Environs was in excellent condition. So was Flower Hill Road. Um, Treasury Buildings was excellent, the Trim Navin Approach Road. So, 
Um, every reason to think Navin, which struggled in our survey, Michael, for a number of years, but has come good recently, um, that, that, that it'll flourish again in 2020. OK, and one of uh, the problems bringing down the ranking for Navin is cigarette butts. Uh, and uh, I take it uh, that we could end up wearing these butts. Tell us uh, about uh, this No Butts initiative. Well, well yes, no, it's just um, we are concerned that cigarette butts, and too many people see them as harmless, and they just flick them on the street in a way they mm. wouldn't flick normal litter. But um, they're far from harmless. And I think I've said before that a single cigarette butt can contaminate 200 litres of groundwater, can you believe? Right. They're also plastic. They enter our water systems very easily, contribute to plastic pollution. We'd like to see them recycled. We've come across a, a, a new startup called NoButts.ie, which is looking to recycle the, the, the butts that local authorities can send them. So they're looking for the local authorities to literally send them the books that they've collected and they can turn them into sunglasses and other items. God, that's um, nice. But mm, th- mm. the key point is once they're on the ground, Michael, mm. they're gone. You can't recover them. Uh, so and that may hope- be of more appeal uh, than it is at present uh, when an EU directive comes into force. The new directive, which is, we'll, we'll have to see how it plays out, but it's putting the responsibility on the tobacco manufacturer to collect the cigarette butts. Now, again, I'm not sure how, that's, that's the year, yeah. that's coming in, in, in next year. But, um, you know, we'd like to see um, people realise that cigarette butts actually have a value. That might make them think twice and they put it in the proper receptacle rather than dropping it on the ground. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed, Connor. Thank you, Michael. Conor Horgan, spokesperson with IBAL, the Irish Businesses Against Litter. Interesting stuff. Uh, I think you'll agree the idea of uh, wearing sunglasses made out of old cigarette butts. God, anything is possible. Mm, <laughs> if I can get to a couple of more comments yeah. before we finish mm. up. Deirdre, uh, re- in response to your discussion with the Paul Bell on the ambulance situation, says that the, ho- the whole situation is a disgrace that uh, you cannot have it that hospitals are so busy that ambulances are being held up and it wouldn't do if there was a major accident. It's Mm. just so serious and needs to be addressed. On homelessness, Peter from Dundalk was listening into your interview with Mike Allen from Focus Ireland and says we have an election coming up, Michael, Mm. and voters need to think about who they return to office. They need to get commitments in relation to the housing crisis in this country and how the various different parties are going to tackle it. What are their policies? How are they going to address it? The government, I feel, is failing in its duty to citizens regarding the provision, uh, provision of housing at the moment. The increasing numbers of homeless is shameful and shocking. Okay, maybe the problem is all of the political parties will pledge to solve uh, the housing Mm -hmm. crisis. They'll pledge to solve the health crisis uh, and then some will promise to put an extra fiver in your pocket every week and so on. So maybe that'll be the deciding factor. Maybe so. Can I get Mm -hmm. one more? Okay. Leo Mm -hmm. rang in about the Royal Irish Constabulary commemorations that are due to take place on the 17th of this month. He thinks it's an absolute disgrace that the government is organising such an event that the RIC carried out hideous attacks all over the country and tormented and mistreated the Irish people. And why on earth would we be doing anything to mark this? Okay. Thanks for that. And thanks to everybody who has been in touch. Thanks, Marie, for that matter. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 715 958. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to the good news. As a country, we are in the money. A decade ago, in 2010, the government raised some €31 billion Euro in taxes last year. That increased to €59 billion, Euro, almost double the amount that has been collected over the period of 10 years. We've gone from a position of having annual budget deficits, deficits to a surplus last year of one and a half billion euro. Let's talk about this with Father Sean Healy, the Director of Social Justice Ireland. Good morning to you, Sean, and thanks uh, for joining us here on uh, the programme this morning. I think the surplus last year was uh, a little bit unexpected and was due uh, in part, at least, uh, to uh, unexpected surge in corporation tax and uh, 1.4 billion more than the government had expected to, to raise through corporation taxes. That's true, and uh, there's been a consistent pattern of this over the last number of years where the government has consistently, or that is the Department of Finance, has consistently underestimated the tax take coming in from the corporate sector. Uh, Part of that is that it underestimates the impact that uh, various tax avoidance schemes we're actually having, the double Irish, which has now uh, come to an end, but um, that that kind of approach um, was succeeding in bringing in very dramatic money from companies like like Google and Facebook and Microsoft, people that had huge um, had, that have huge interests in trying to reduce the taxes that they actually pay, and they were able to do that in Ireland uh, because Ireland was in effect one of the biggest um, sort of tax avoidance areas, uh, or provided with some of the best uh, tax avoidance schemes ever devised uh, for such uh, companies. And uh, about half of the money that is raised through corporation tax, uh, which is this tax that businesses pays, is paid by about 10 companies. That is correct. And that's partly, uh, that, that shows very clearly where the weakness in the Irish whole development model is. And we've been arguing about this for years, that there should be a much greater focus on developing indigenous Irish business and supporting local development rather than putting a huge amount of effort into attracting in transnationals who basically come in, uh, not just for the 12.5% corporate tax rate that we have, but for also for the loopholes that are in there that we provide them with, uh, which enable them to actually reduce their 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 tax uh, amounts even even or their t- the amounts that they're due even more. But in actual fact, uh, the days of that of us getting away with that as a country are running out because both the European Commission and the OECD, the Organisation for Economic and mm. uh, Cooperation and Development, uh, which is all the major development, developed countries in the world, they're both uh, taking or uh, making serious proposals about how to deal with this situation because uh, they, are, they don't believe that it should be allowed to continue and that's a belief that we would, uh, would share. All right. Uh, so we're talking about taxes that's, uh, that are raised uh, from business, uh, everything from small business, the small corner shop uh, uh, to the local deli up to the very big corporations like Google and Facebook and so on. Uh, and what are we talking about in terms of what the government raises? Uh, it must be in the region of eight, eight and a half billion euro. Somewhere in that kind of area. It depends, obviously, on the year. But it's also important to realise that the small corner shop that you're talking mm-hmm. about, uh, the little local uh, business... They're paying the 12.5%. They're actually paying the 12.5%. <laughs> yeah. They're very mm-hmm. close to it. They don't mm-hmm. get the 
kind of breaks are, and they don't have the scale uh, to be able to benefit uh, from the dramatic breaks that the others get. And one of the proposals that we have been uh, making for quite a, a long time is that there should be what we call a minimum effective corporate tax rate. In other words, that there should be a rate that uh, corporations would have to pay. Uh, now, remember, they're only paying uh, tax on their profits, unlike the person who has a job and has to pay tax on the money that all the money mm. that they earn before they actually have a profit, if you like. Mm. The, uh, the situation with, with uh, corporations is they only pay it on, the, on their their their, um, their profits. And, and if people are paying 20 or 40% in personal income right. tax, so they might think that rate at 12.5% is very good, uh, but these bigger companies do even better than that. They do, and some of them are down at 1 or 2%, and mm. they've admitted that in other arenas, not necessarily mm. here in mm. Ireland, where they claim that their standard response is to say they... they meet all their legal requirements, and that is true. Uh, but the legal requirement isn't that they pay 12.5%, it's that they pay 12.5%, but also that they, they are they have every right to get through the loopholes that have been mm. created and allowed to develop. But now, does that matter? Because that they're creating a, a lot of jobs and each of their employees pays a, a lot in income tax uh, and the amount of tax they pay, whilst it might be small in percentage terms, whether that's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 or 6%, uh, it uh, equates to an awful lot of money. As we say, there's about 8.5 billion raised through corporation tax and if 10 companies are paying half that uh, amount, uh, well, uh, you can't scoff at 4 billion billion, five billion euro like that. Of course not. But uh, I think the best way for us to deal with it would be to actually start off by putting a minimum effective corporate tax rate in place that we were talking about. And not alone us now, but the the OECD that I mentioned earlier Mm. are now moving in this direction. And they're proposing to do something of that, of, the, of that, or to use that kind of approach. They're mm. they're basically saying that there needs to be a minimum tax rate, and that would neutralise these big firms from attempting to shop around for low tax jurisdictions like Ireland. Mm. And you mentioned the double Irish, which is one of uh, those schemes, and it allowed some of these companies uh, to move their profits through this country and onto tax havens like Bermuda and so on. Uh, and it, it uh, was quite often criticised. Uh, by many countries, uh, including uh, America, and uh, there were many threats made uh, against tax policy in this country. But the government said it would close the double Irish. You said uh, it's closing now, but they announced five years ago it was going to close, didn't they? They they gave a five-year notice, and it finished eventually there on New Year's Eve. And it was interesting because on New Year's Eve, Google announced uh, the... Uh, in regulatory filings in the in the Netherlands, that uh, it had ceased to use the loophole, uh, the double Irish or the Dutch language as it was known there, mm. uh, to shelter its profits from the US's high corporation tax rates. Now they didn't say they were going to pay those rates. They're basically going to deal with other things. There's a lot of tax breaks in the United States as well, mm. and uh, loopholes through which corporations uh, can 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 go because the the same uh, problem that we have in terms of the corporations getting a lot of the tax breaks and uh, and may, and high net worth individuals are doing very well. Uh, the ordinary person has to pay through the nose, uh, and th- that's the actual same situation in the United States as we have here. More or less, the rates are different a bit, but mm-hmm. that's not the that's not to to sort of um, change that. But the the reality is that Ireland has a low uh, tax take. That's when you put all Ireland's taxes together. We're low by European standards. And I suppose the argument we've been making all along is that we should the, the, what the, the level of overall taxation that we should be paying uh, should be dictated by the level of infrastructure that we want uh, in like social housing and mm. broadband and 
public transport and on the other side by the level of services we want in health and education and places in situations like that childcare and so on so uh, we as a society we badly need to have a serious discussion about the level of infrastructure we need like by the, by the, about the, the level of services we want and then how these are to be paid for. They won't all be necessarily paid for by the taxpayer, but what proportion of them should be paid by the taxpayer. Mm. And the, the, to sort of think in terms of a more holistic approach, if you like, or a, an integrated approach to our policy development. And, um, and then when you have money left over, like you get sudden windfalls like mm. from the corporation tax, we would argue that that should be used only for one-off investment. In other words, that you, you build something or you put something into place and you build it and it's there. Now, I know that the government, uh, you have to, you have, as well as uh, putting it into place, you also have to get value for money. And mm. two of the things the government has done have followed this idea um, in, in recent times. One is the children's hospital and the other is rural broadband. But I would argue that uh, they, our government got a bad deal in both, in both cases and a very poorly handled uh, approach to the whole thing. And the and government much better. The, the government is putting uh, this unexpected windfall uh, against our, our debt, against our national debt, rather than putting it into uh, day-to-day spending or on an, a specific project. And that's something you disagree with. Uh, no, no. Uh, I, I would. I, I, I suppose. Uh, I, I don't think it should go into day-to-day spending, mm-hmm. like like uh, increasing wages or whatever. Why? Because when the when the windfall dries up, mm. you have a huge problem. And we had that ten years ago, and we've had it in the past as well. What we should do is put it into one-off expenditure mm-hmm. until such time as our public transport system and our social housing and so on are at the European average level. I'll give you a simple statistic: most people are not aware of the average uh, level of social housing in Europe, in Western European countries is 20% of the housing in those countries is social housing. In, in Ireland, it's 9%. And yet, if you were listening to some of the discussion uh, that goes on, sometimes you think the government thinks that we have one of the highest levels of social housing and that we're doing a great job. In actual fact, we're way behind the European average in terms of social housing. And, we, and as a result, we have a completely, not just that, there's other issues as well, have produced a, 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 an absolutely ludicrous uh, uh, housing system that uh, has led to uh, rents that are far in excess of what they should be and far in excess of what people can afford and houses themselves that people can't buy and because they're way beyond their, the, 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 the capacity of average people to, uh, people with average incomes to actually access them. And finally, having social housing, the total uh, undersupply of social housing. And we uh, have a situation that the government needs about 35,000, 40,000 houses a year to be built for 10 years in a row. And of those, a very substantial proportion should be social housing. And yet, you hear the minister over the weekend, the minister for housing, uh, saying that uh, he, he basically was rejecting all of this. Why? Because we're, we have a plan. Now, the, plan, the fact mm. that the plan isn't working uh, and that none of the five pillars of the plan is working mm. doesn't seem to bother him. Uh, but the, the interesting thing is he's saying, and we're building 20,000 houses this year. And we're simply saying, we need twice that amount. What's the big deal about doing half of what you should do uh, uh, after being nine years mm. in office? Okay. You know, there's something yep. fundamentally wrong with what, what's happening on, on, on the social housing front. And as a result, we are all suffering. Okay, well, 
there's a one and a half billion uh, uh, available that wasn't expected or the 14 billion plus interest uh, which made 19 billion from Apple uh, that could have been available had uh, the government wanted to avail of it for such specific projects as you say but we leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us here Thanks, on the programme this morning. Thank you very much. Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you were listening to the programme on Friday, you'll know that the year has started very badly for Melissa Lynch and Raymond Darling, who were with us, to tell us that they had lost their jobs. They're two of five people who lost their jobs or returned to work last Thursday, uh, where they are cleaners in Indiver, Ireland, uh, to find out that somebody else had their job and that they'd been dismissed. Uh, They don't understand why that is uh, the case. Uh, because the work continues and the difference is uh, that uh, they had worked uh, for uh, contract cleaners and the contract has gone to a different company. Uh, They believe that they should have been taken on by this company under what's known as 2B regulations. This is uh, the Transfer of Undertakings European Directive. Uh, Alan Smith Cleaning Services has taken over the contract at Indiver Ireland uh, and he did make a statement to us saying that he's reviewed the 2B regulations and believes that 2B does not uh, apply. Uh, we don't really understand why that is the case and we've asked Alan Smith to explain to us why he doesn't believe uh, they uh, apply given that the Workplace Relations Commission says uh, that a transfer of undertakings occurs when a business or part of a business is taken over by another employer as a result of a merger or transfer. When a transfer takes place there is a legal obligation on the new employer to take on the existing staff of the business or the part of the business concerned. The Workplace Relations Commission also says that an employer employee may not be dismissed solely by reason of the transfer. Uh, We asked Alan Smith uh, when he uh, issued us with that statement on Friday to come back to us. We haven't heard back from him since and we have not heard back from Indiver Ireland at all, despite uh, many uh, attempts to get a statement from the company. Let's hear from local TD, Fianna Falls, Thomas Byrne, who has been meeting uh, with uh, the workers. He's on the line and a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, What's your take on all of this? Well, I mean, I was absolutely shocked when uh, Raymond Darling and the other four workers contacted me there, really at Christmas Eve, pretty much, actually. Um, And I met them then last Monday. And I think they've been treated absolutely appallingly uh, by everybody in this particular scenario because uh, they have worked there. um, Some of them have worked there for years. Eight years in some cases. Yeah, yeah. in some cases, yeah. yeah. Um, Others not so long. Um, But they're all local people. They're all people that have proven, I think, to be absolutely dependable in terms of uh, the work that's done in Indiver. Um, it suits the workers as well because it's very close to home. They're, they're nearly often to leak. Um, and it's, it's just, it just works out well for everybody that those particular jobs and they're in every particular circumstances. And it's very hard to get similar jobs uh, in the area. Alan Smith and Cleaning it, Services has a, a contract with Indiver Ireland to carry out cleaning at Indiver. Do you believe Indiver has a, a responsibility in this? Oh, I do. No, I, I just, I mean, I, I suppose I'm harking back to my, my former profession as a, as a solicitor and I just want to be very very careful of what I say about anything about this because I don't want to there almost certainly will be some sort of case I'm trying to source representation uh, for the workers at the moment and so I just I want to be very very careful and I mightn't just say everything that maybe everybody wants me to say but um, I, I absolutely think Indiver have responsibility um, in fact I wrote to them uh, last Monday immediately after I met the workers now I rang them 
on Thursday to check that they got my correspondence. And in fact, I was on the phone from today again to check that they got my correspondence. I haven't, I haven't had a response from them, but I think that Indiver should uh, get involved in this. Mm. Uh, it is a fact that they, they are involved in it as a contractor. It is also a fact that some of these workers uh, benefited from the two-pay regulations previously. Um, so you know, this contract has passed before and the workers haven't uh, lost their jobs or been uh, completely left in the lurch. Uh, I think Endeavour need to get involved because, I mean, they're, you know, an organisation, a company that talks about their engagement with the community and all of that. It's a huge company. Uh, it's a huge, it's a huge company. company. They yeah. have and many people working. Sector. They have many people working in communications. They have many legal advisors and so on. And I, I think it is beyond belief that they have not issued a statement to media requests in relation to this, even if that statement was a position of no comment. Yeah, I, I can't believe that they haven't responded to me either. Um, I mean, I, I sent my email last week. It was pretty detailed asking for a response. I think it's the least that these workers deserve. Um, I think it's pretty shoddy to treat probably the lowest paid and the lowest hours workers uh, in this way and also some of the most dedicated workers uh, in this way. I think it's wrong. I think there are questions to be asked by the new contractor and indeed by the old contractor as well, um, who, uh, by all accounts, they're all very mm. honourable people. But uh, at the bottom line is that five workers now are caught in the middle of all of this. Uh, and look, there will undoubtedly be a case to the Workplace Relations Commission, undoubtedly. Um, so I think we just have to be careful that we don't prejudice that. But I think the strongest, the, the, the strongest point that these workers have is that they were previously too paid uh, under the Transfer of Undertakings Directive. So that, to me, that's the precedent. I mean, to me, that makes it open and shut in terms of their employment should continue at this site in accordance with their contract. Uh, and at least one of the contracts I saw, they contracted hours. Uh, in, 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 in Endeavour that's where they're employed mm. to work and that's where they should still be working and that's where they should still be paid and by all accounts they would do a fantastic job there as, uh, as they have done for many many years Yeah we've uh, seen similar cases uh, to this over the years and I, I think uh to the best of my knowledge at least uh, the judgments have always uh, come down in favour of uh, the workforce uh, because it seems as though uh, this European uh, regulation is pretty clear. It's spelled out uh, in black and white uh, on uh, the Workplace Relations Commission's website, uh, as I, I read out a, a few moments ago. I suppose law isn't always black and white, uh, but it's very hard to understand why anybody would think that this regulation doesn't apply to these workers, given uh, what the WRC has to say about 2P. Well, my, my, my strong view is that it does apply to the workers, and as I said, strong basis for that, even if you never looked at the law, is the fact that it happened before. Uh, and they, their, their rights were, were at least two of the staff members were there at a time when the contract previously changed in exactly the same circumstances. So to me, uh, that, that without even looking at the law, it's already happened. That's the precinct. Why, why would it be any different now? Uh, the problem, of course, for any workers and for low-paid workers, uh, particularly in organisations that aren't unionised, uh, is that it's very difficult to take to go on and take the case. I mean, it, it, there's no even if you get a hearing at the WRC, it's not going to happen today or tomorrow. Mm. Um, and we, this arose just before Christmas at the worst possible time of the year. We had last week where people, not everybody, I would say, was still in work. Um, I, I did get a call from a daver this morning, but it was merely just following up on my call last Thursday to see that they get the email uh, that I sent. Um, but I sus- this suspicion was, uh, in my opinion, that. They weren't. They were just getting back to work today, and that's maybe the case for for quite a number of people. Uh, so I'd certainly be be pursuing this further again today with everybody concerned. And that's all three parties concerned: the original contractor, Endeavour, uh, and the new contractor. Uh, and also, I think to secure uh, representation for the workers to bring a case to the WRC if that proves necessary. But I, I have no doubt that that's where it will end up. 
Okay, when a, a company such as Indiver in this case uh, contracts out work to another company such as Alan Smith Cleaning Services in uh, this case, uh, does it transfer responsibility for complying with employment law to the contract company? Well, that's generally the. I mean, look. I mean, the rule is that the workers, if a part of a business transfer is over, um, then the workers stay with it on the same mm. terms and conditions. That's the that's the rules under the transfer of undertakings directive, and that's happened before. Uh, and the, the 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 one thing that's absolutely certain is. Uh, that nobody loses their job as a result mm. of this. I mean, these people are here longer than the minimum requirements. Mm. Uh, so they have to be kept on by somebody. Uh, but that's not happened. It's completely mm. slipped through the cracks. I mean, they got a letter from their previous contractor saying that they had transferred over under the transfer of undertakings regulations and they transferred their files. Now, I questioned that when I when I went with the workers to the gate in Endeavour, where it, it so happened that the, contract, the new contractor was there and, and, and was the person responsible for bringing them in or not bringing them in. Uh, and it, that was completely denied. So mm. they're literally caught in the middle and it's, it's completely wrong. Uh, it's it's shameful. And the fact that this happened over Christmas just makes it even worse. I mean, okay. It's just but, there, there, but there is a question here if employment law is being complied with or, or not. Now, that needs to... Uh, be adjudicated. But, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but, and that's, but, that's, but, where, but, that's where a hearing comes in. Yeah, sure. I mean, but, but we're not going. Well, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to do that over the radio today. I no, taking the case. No, and I, I, that they should be kept on and moved, moved under the the the, the, the regulation. But absolutely, it, that's, that's, is that a question for Alan Smith Cleaning Services alone, or is it also a question? for Indiver Ireland? Well, I think it's a question for Indiver Ireland as well, and that's why I wrote them initially. I mean, look, mm. I mean, the, the, my understanding was that they would have been involved with this, that some of their, you know, that some of the cleaning equipment is in Dapper, so it's not mm. entirely uh, a contract uh, that is just subcontracted out, that Indiver do have a role here under the law, and I've examined that, and that's that's certainly my view, mm. uh, and I'm sure that if, if when the workers take a case, that that's the case that they would and be I, I, I think from my memory of other cases uh, that when... Uh, the equipment is the property of one company that that directly involves them in it. And given that there are questions which have not been answered and need to be adjudicated on and ruled on uh, if that is to happen, but given that there are questions being asked by uh, local TD, questions that are being put to the company by a media outlet as to whether a company the size of Indiver Ireland is complying with employment law, it makes it all the more remarkable that there has been no response whatsoever. None whatsoever. And I mean, normally if we email a company in these circumstances, they would definitely get back to us, even if they don't say very much. Endeavour, as you, just in the same way as you, have said absolutely nothing to us uh, and to you or to me. And I think I think it's outrageous. And I think the fact that these workers would have been dealing directly uh, with people um, uh, in Endeavour on a day, it's very senior people. And I can also say, Michael, over the years, you know, Indiver people, uh, uh, senior managers were never afraid to mm. ring me uh, on a number of occasions if there was legislation at issue. Uh, and it's just a pity that they wouldn't make the same phone calls now when, mm. when, when, there's, an issue about, when there's an issue about staff. OK, well, we'll ask Indiver Ireland and indeed Alan Smith Cleaning Services uh, to uh, make contact with us. Of course, we'd like them to come on to the programme to explain it themselves. If they wish to do it uh, through way of a written statement, they're welcome to do that. Uh, Alan Smith has given us a statement, but if he wants to explain what he means when he says he believes that the 2P direction doesn't uh, apply in this instance. Uh, we'd love to uh, understand uh, why that is uh, the case. Uh, but uh, I think we'll probably talk about it again uh, on the programme tomorrow for the sake of the five workers who have been left high and dry and out of a job. Yeah, well, look, I'll be, I'll be in touch with the various parties again today to see to see can I move it forward. But I just haven't had anything since since Thursday or Friday, since, since Raymond Darling was on your programme, and mm-hmm. in fairness to Raymond and Melissa representing the other three workers as well. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, hopefully we'll hear something uh, before we talk about it on the radio again tomorrow uh, because uh, we'll remind uh, people uh, what's happening in Indiver Ireland uh, through Alan Smith Cleaning Services uh, on the programme again tomorrow. Perhaps uh, either company would like to make contact and give some explanation to the five people who are out of work uh, in the interim. But we thank you for joining us here on the programme this morning uh, and for your time as always. Uh, That's Fianna Fáil TD for me, these Thomas Byrne. Michael Reed on LMFM. Peter Kavanagh is Head of Communications and Public Affairs with Active Retirement Ireland. He's on the line and good morning to you, Peter, and thanks for joining us. Uh, we're going to talk about being active after you retire. In fact, so active that you probably will have to find a job because if you retire or if you're forced to retire from your job this year at the age of 65, you won't be entitled to a pension until you're 67. If you are forced to retire from your job next year at 65, it'll be 68 before you're entitled to receive a pension. And uh, the estimate is uh, that 30,000 pensioners will end up on the dole this year. Yeah, and on the dole for two years. Uh, This is not a new problem. It's something we've been dealing with since the scrapping of the transition pension, which was quite a few years ago. And the transition pension used to tide you over between the end of your job at 65 and the collection of the state pension at 66. Uh, Unfortunately, there's been a big loophole, a big sort of a a gap in legislation. We we have an ageing population. We still have the youngest population in Europe, of course, but we have a population that's growing older, and we needed to do something to to deal with this fact, the fact that people are living longer, that they're healthier in older age, and many, many people, not everyone by any stretch of the imagination, but many people are capable of remaining in employment for longer and capable of staying in work for longer. So the retirement age was was raised, and you know, the 1st of January, um, just last week was the first day of this taking effect. So anybody who turns 65 this year and is let go out of their job because they've reached the age of retirement in their contract, Mm. um, up until this year, for the last five years, they would have had to take the dole for a year. Unfortunately, that's gone up to two years now. And it's simply because this this gap in the legislation means that while we've raised the retirement age, we haven't done anything to deal with what happens to these people in the interim. We haven't done anything to change the fact that your retirement contract, or your contract rather, the retirement age in your contract, can still be 65. Mm. And more tellingly and more worryingly, we haven't really done anything for the people who really have to and want to and need to retire at the age of 65 because it's a decision that's been taken with a very sort of a, um, shall we say, a, a middle-class, mm. office-based mentality. Asher, sure, look, you'll be yeah. grand. You can sit at your desk for another two years. But, you know, for somebody who's carrying a hod for a living or working on building sites or doing hard manual labour for their entire life, they either need to be retrained into a different position or they do need to access their pension and retire early. Um, what so happens? Just, what happens to people, Peter, uh, after nine months, uh, after they've retired, have been forced to retire from their job? If uh, they've been prudent to put something uh, away for their retirement, uh, they'll be means tested and they'll get nothing from the state. Well, that's exactly it. After that period of time, if you don't have a private pension, we're kind of worried as to what would happen. There was a short extension of the job seekers benefit um, for those who retired at the age of 65 and were going to collect their pension at 66. Um, You know, the Department of Social Protection haven't been very forthcoming as to what happens to people, uh, you know, Mm. over the age of 65 who have to wait until they're 67 now. So we're going into this sort of blind. Uh, We know that there's a general election coming this year, so this hasn't been made a priority 
the Minister for Social Protection has been looking at re-examining the pension system, making it all about the, the amount of total contributions you put in instead of the averaging system mm. brought in by Joan Burton in, in 2012. Uh, and this has been low priority because it doesn't affect a huge amount of people. But now we're starting to see far more now. Mm. 30,000 people will turn 65 this year yeah. and this will affect them for two years. So the lack of communication, mm. the lack of guidance to people turning 65 this year from the Department of Social Protection is the most worrying thing. In and they may be left without any income for 15 months and an additional 12 months next year when that uh, state pension age increases from 67 to 68. Now, I know employers can't discriminate on the basis of age when they're recruiting, but you wouldn't really fancy your chances going out looking for a job at 66, would you? Well, never mind 66. We have a lot of people joining active retirement at the moment in their late 50s because they know that if, they, if they're if they laid off or their their employment contract comes to an end, any, any age over 50, 55, a lot of people are saying, I might as well consider myself retired because while employers can't discriminate legally on the grounds of age, all they have to do is look at your CV and see when you did your leaving cert or when you did your intercert and they can get a good idea of how old you are. And unfortunately, hiring practices in Ireland can still be quite ageist. Uh, and you know, this, it, it's really unfortunate because when you look at the studies done into older workers, they tend to be better workers, they tend to be more loyal, they tend to know what they're doing. You don't have to train them up on the job as often. And it benefits a company to bring on older people, but it's not a very happy hunting ground for people age 65 who are being let go. And one of the key things here is that you know, one department hasn't been talking to the other, Michael. This has been very, very poorly planned right from the start because the Department of Social Protection has said, we're going to put you on the dole when you're 65. Don't worry about it. We won't make you get a job. But they've done nothing in the Department of Justice to deal with the fact that it's perfectly legal for your employment contract to say, at 65, you're out the door. All right. Now, now there's an interesting aspect to that because the Irish Independent uh, is uh, reporting today that cases against that are likely to skyrocket. And they've been speaking to Richard Grogan, uh, who is uh, an employment law solicitor, and he's been taking cases on behalf of people uh, in respect of being laid off at 65 or retired at 65 if you like. Uh, And he says uh, that the amount of cases uh, that are challenging this decision will quadruple, or they have quadrupled over the past four years. Yeah, they have, and they're set to go up again because you're looking at more people facing into a longer period of time. In many respects, the Department of Social Protection has been sort of getting away with this because the difference between job seekers' benefit and the the pension was only about 40-odd euros. So people have been sort of putting up with it for the period of time until they reach 66 getting their full state pension and then they were fine. But now where you have this ambiguity as to what happens after job seekers benefit runs out and what happens if I means tested and my partner is working or my wife or my husband is working and I don't get the, the, the state pension non-contributory or I don't get the job seekers allowance, then I'm in a bind so I'm going to have to take a legal challenge and this is, a, is one of the failings in our equality legislation. We've got very progressive equality legislation that covers the nine grounds of discrimination. You're not allowed to re, you know refuse mm. someone the opportunity to work for you on the basis of nine grounds but the age ground only applies to people between the ages of 18 and 65 okay. that's why your contract is allowed to finish at 65 and that's why you're allowed to give someone under the age of 18 lower than minimum wage they have okay. a different minimum wage law for people under the yeah. age of 18 so that is something that's going to need to change and I worry that it may happen
have to take a test case in the European Court of Justice mm. to make this happen. Because well, maybe you'll have to, the change, way we draw maybe you'll have to change the name of your organisation from Active Retirement Ireland to find a job after you're forced <laughs> to retire or let them eat cake. Yeah, it's uh, not so as catchy, but we maybe. might have to. <laughs> All right, Peter, thank you indeed Thanks, for joining Michael. us on the programme. Peter Kavanagh, Head of Communications and Public Affairs with Active Retirement Ireland. Brings our programme to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.